Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, very famous, well-known passage. The prophet Isaiah says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destroyed, destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You know, there are certain realities about living in our world that are simply inescapable. Um, the great anthropologist Ernest Becker talked about one of those realities in his 1974 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. He said, I think that taking life seriously means something like this, that whatever we do on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. He talks about the rumble of panic. What a phrase. You know, this passage we just read gives us a very vivid image of that. It talks about um, every warrior's boot used in battle. Imagine an army, uh, thousands upon thousands of soldiers all marching in formation. And every time their boots hit the ground, it's like you can hear it for miles. You, you, it, you can actually feel the earth shaking. Thump, 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 thump. The rumble of panic. I, th I think we all know what that rumble of panic feels like. For some of you right now, it's inescapable. Um, maybe it's anxiety about, um, about uh, your job or your financial situation. Maybe for others of you, it's the rumble is con connected to your grades or your schoolwork. Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, you know, your world is shaking right now because of some concern, perhaps with relation to uh, your health or a family member or maybe a relationship that's a mess. It could be any number of things. But for you right now, that rumble really feels relentless. Uh, for others of you, maybe life is going pretty good right now. Uh, things are fine, but, but when you stop moving, you know, when you, when you put down the smartphone or the drink, when you turn off the TV or the internet, you can still kind of hear it. It's faint, but you can still hear it thump. That rumble of panic is still there. And, and even, it's even more than just our own personal lives. You know, we are so digitally connected nowadays that 
everything that happens in the world immediately shows up on our social feed or on our TV, and it just amplifies the rumble of panic in our lives. So it might be politics, or climate change, or the economy, or the culture, or the opioid crisis, or racial injustice, or did I mention politics? You know, it's just like, we want to be hopeful. But a lot of times, it's just so hard to feel like that. It just, the world just feels so dark sometimes. And we want to know, is real hope possible? Especially at Christmas. Because what's Christmas supposed to be all about? Peace on earth. And we want to know, is that real? Is it possible? This passage that we just read is saying, yes, it is real. It is possible. But Ernest Becker is right. And we have to take uh, seriously that rumble of panic that he talked about. So this passage is telling us that, that the rumble of panic is real, but also the hope of peace, it's real too. And as we look at it, I'm just going to meditate very briefly on the two big ideas that are really present here in this passage. We're going to think about the unnerving truth of our darkness, and secondly, the surprising nature of the light. The unnerving truth of the darkness and the surprising nature of the light. Okay, so first, we're learning about the unnerving truth of our darkness. You know, this passage is all about a great light that's breaking into the world. So Isaiah begins by talking about the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, you know, the Gospel of Matthew tells us explicitly that this is talking about Jesus, and we'll get to that. But first, we have to understand, what does Isaiah mean when he says that, that our world is in darkness? When the Bible talks about darkness, it's referring to two forms of darkness, moral darkness and spiritual darkness, okay? So moral darkness is, well, we call that evil. So the people in this passage, uh, their circumstances were they were living with financial predators, the threat of military violence, uh, economic oppression, poverty, corrupt leadership, uh, ethnic hostilities. Does any of that sound familiar? Or if you go to the time when Jesus was born, you see all the same things. Uh, we also see things like children being torn from their families and killed, political refugees, uh, homelessness, persecution. Does any of that sound familiar? Our world is still plagued by all of those things and more. Moral evil, moral darkness is every bit as much a part of the world we live in as it was then. But Isaiah also says that our world is characterized by spiritual darkness. Now, what is that? Spiritual darkness is the belief that, that we human beings actually have the power to heal the moral darkness of our lives in our world. And that, um, that God doesn't play any real role in that. Uh, maybe except as some kind of cheerleader on the sidelines. You know, and that belief really is one of the dominating narratives in our culture, isn't it? One of my favorite examples of this comes from the Book of Mormon, the Broadway show. Uh, not the actual book itself. Uh, the show is about two Mormon missionaries who go to Africa to tell the people there about God's plan for the world according to the Book of Mormon. And um, unfortunately, only one of those missionaries actually knows what their religion teaches, and he gets discouraged and leaves. So when all of the people come to the other missionary and ask him, hey, what does your religion teach? He has no idea. So he just makes up a bunch of crazy stories in fact, um, it's obscene and crude, and that's part of the point of the show. 
Because by the end, when all of these crazy stories are debunked and shown to be a fraud, one of the characters, her name is Nabalungi, she's heartbroken because she actually believed it. And so all of her friends, the townspeople, come to her and say, hey, you didn't actually believe it, did you? None of that was actually true. It's a metaphor. All the prophets speak in metaphors. You see, the main message of the whole show is that if you take religion too seriously, too literally, it'll just turn you into a fool and a bigot. But if you understand that it's all just a metaphor, and then you take those basic principles and apply them to your lives to be a better person and make the world a better place, well, then um, we can do that. We can make this world a better place. And you actually see that at the end of the show. One of the missionaries, he's been enlightened. You know, he's been liberated out of the darkness of his religious fog. And and he puts it like this. He says, even if we change some things or we break the rules or we have complete doubt that God exists, we can still all work together and make this our paradise planet. You see, the, the idea in our modern secular world is that we need to be enlightened. We need to be liberated out of superstitious religious darkness. And that if we do that, we can finally make this world the place it's supposed to be. Now, here's the deal. If there is no God, then that's right. It really is all up to us. But if you're at least open to the possibility that there's something more beyond this world, that that maybe even there's a divine creator, then I would just ask, How's that working for us? This idea that we human beings have the power to save the world, how's it working for us? And even maybe at more of an individual level, I would ask you personally, if you believe in God, but God really functions in your life more as a metaphor, if you believe in God, but, but to you he's really more of a personal assistant or a creative consultant or a life coach or a feel-good guru, but not the Lord of your life, then how's that working for you? Thump. Thump, thump, thump. The spiritual darkness is is the idea, really it's a delusion, that we actually have the power as human beings to heal the moral darkness of the world in which we live. One of the main messages of Christmas, and we see it in this passage, is that will never work. And that leads to our second point. We've just talked about the unnerving truth of our darkness. But secondly, we see the surprising nature of the light. You know, as I mentioned The Gospel of Matthew explicitly tells us that this passage is is talking about Jesus. So what is it showing us? Well, three things, and and I want to look at them each very briefly. The first is this. It it shows us that a great light is going to come into the world, but this light is going to come in a very surprising, unexpected way. Isaiah begins by saying in verse 1, In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. Now here's what's so surprising about this. He's saying this light that's going to heal the world, that it comes from Galilee. Galilee was a backwater, hick region in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Galilee was nowheresville, and anybody who came from Galilee was a nobody. And in fact, you actually see this approach. I mean, anybody reading this, when Isaiah says that that the light that's going to heal the world comes from Galilee, people would have laughed at that. And you see that in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, when one of the first disciples of Jesus, Philip, goes and finds his buddy Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's Jesus of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? 
And you can hear the, the scorn just dripping off of his lips when he says it. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He mocks Jesus. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, this is really a rebuke to our pride. And actually, it's the perfect antidote to our spiritual darkness because we think that we see. We think we know. We think we have the power. But for the Savior of the world to come as a poor, uneducated peasant from a backwater hick town, to come as a nobody, that's basically God's way of saying, if you think you see, you're blind. If you think you know, then you're in the deepest darkness of all. My salvation, God is saying, does not come into the world through power and prestige. It comes through weakness and defeat. Are you willing to allow yourself to be humbled by that? It's the surprising nature of the light. But secondly, Isaiah shows us the divine nature of the light because Isaiah actually calls Jesus God. In verse 6, he says he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, we don't have time to go through all of those titles, but here's what I would press into us this evening. Those titles are really things that can only belong to God alone. No orthodox Jewish prophet would ever have given those titles to a mere human being. That means that not only are we humbled by the surprising nature of the light, we're also challenged by the divine nature of the light because Jesus challenges each and every one of us with the question, who or what are you worshiping? Because we're all worshiping something. Even if you think, well, I'm not really a religious person, something has your ultimate allegiance. Something is where you find ultimate hope in this world. I think still by far one of the most eloquent articulations of this is David Foster Wallace in his famous Kenyan college speech of 2005. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I mean, David Foster Wallace asks us, he asks you, the same question that Jesus asks you, what are you worshiping? because we're all worshiping something. And understand, this is a question that is um, every bit as much for Christians as it is for those who are exploring faith. Maybe even more so for Christians. We are almost more susceptible to spiritual darkness because it's so easy to be worshiping something else and the whole time fool ourselves into thinking that we're really following Jesus because, hey, look, all the externals of my life are in place. In other words, we'll point to our spiritual resume right? And, and, and we'll say, hey, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I, I obey the rules, I tithe my money. Heck, I even listen to Christian radio. All the while, we're, we're, our real allegiance is with something else, whether it's 
um, family or money or career or our moral performance or politics. And that actually leads to the last thing Isaiah shows us about the light. Uh, It's not just the surprising nature of the light. It's not just the divine nature of the light. This is a light. The light that heals the darkness of our world is a light that comes to us by grace. Because if you notice in verse 6, how does he talk about Jesus? He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That means this is a gift. And by definition, a gift is not something that you earn. You can only receive it. Friends, you realize this cuts right against the default nature of our hearts. We all, including myself, we all suffer from something I call good personitis. You know, that the default nature of every human heart is to think, look, the most important thing is being a good person. If, if I'm trying to uh, be a better person, if you're trying to make the world a better place, then if there's a God and you're doing those things, then you are good to go. Hakuna Matata. But, you know, if you think about it, you realize not only is that a profoundly meritocratic and legalistic approach to life, I mean, if you're doing well, it's going to make you um, feel pride. Uh, proud and superior, but if you're not doing so well, it leads you into despair and insecurity. But even more than that, this puts a burden on our shoulders that we can't possibly bear. Being the savior of our lives, the savior of the world, as if we human beings have the power to do it, nobody can bear that burden. In fact, Isaiah in verse 4 talks about that. He's describing people who are walking in moral and spiritual darkness, and notice he talks about the yoke of their oppression and the bar across their shoulders. The idea that we have the power to save our lives, to save the world, to heal the darkness of our lives in this world, that is a burden that that none of our shoulders can possibly bear, which is precisely why Jesus is so wonderful. Because what does it say about Jesus? In verse 6, once again, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that means the rule and the power to set things right, will be on his shoulders In other words, we don't have the power. To to lay that kind of power on our shoulders is an impossible burden. Jesus takes the burden off of our shoulders and carries it on his shoulders. And he did it literally. Because when they put the cross on his back, when they laid it on his shoulders and he carried that cross to Mount Calvary where he was crucified, Jesus was taking the burden of saving the world off of our shoulders and carrying it on his own. All of the burden. That means all of the pride and presumption of our hearts and thinking that we actually have the power to heal the world, but also all of the burdens, that rumble of panic, the thump, thump, thumping in our heart, the fear and anxiety of living in a dark world, Jesus bore all of that on his shoulders on the cross too. Because on the cross, the ultimate true light of heaven that has shone forever descended, was cast headlong into the deepest, utmost darkness and torture of separation from God in order to carry us up out of the darkness and into the light. Friends, the more you see that, the more that your eyes and your heart start coming alive to that, the the light is beginning to dawn on you. And that means that for every single one of us, what we do is we, we lay down our pride, we, we, uh, we put away our false gods, and we, and we cast our burdens on the shoulders of the only one who can save the world and save our lives. We, we cast our burden on his shoulders and receive the rest and the peace and the hope that only Jesus can give. Let's pray.